düşünce soğuk toprak süzüldü Bir kar düşünce soğuk toprak süzüldü Beyaz güzeldi, beyaz güzeldi Toprak toprak yaşam güzeldi Kavuşunca toprak düşen yaprak Kavuşunca toprak düşen yaprak Tenim üzüldü, kanım duruldu Kar bembeyaz soğuk yine de güzeldi
Chapter 3 By now, it was after eleven. The prince knew that the general would be the only one he might find at home at the Yapanchin townhouse, attending to his business affairs, though even that was unlikely. It struck him that the general might well carry him off to Pavlovsk at once, and he was very anxious to pay a certain call before that. At the risk of missing Yepanchin and putting off his trip to Pavlovsk until the next day, the prince resolved to seek out the house he so much wanted to visit. This call was, in certain respects, a risky one for him, however. He was in two minds and hesitated. He knew the house was in Garokhavaya Street, not far from Sadovaya, and decided to set off in that direction, hoping that once he had reached the spot, he could make a final decision. As he approached the intersection of the two streets, he was surprised to find himself feeling intensely nervous. He hadn't expected his heart to pound so painfully. One house, no doubt, because of its peculiar configuration, began to attract his attention while still some way off, and the prince recalled later, saying to himself, that must be the house. Profoundly curious, he went nearer to verify his surmise. He felt that it would be most disagreeable for some reason if he had guessed right. It was a large, gloomy, three-storied house, devoid of architectural pretension and of a dirty green color. There are houses of this sort put up at the end of the last century which have survived unchanged in just such streets in Petersburg, where everything changes so swiftly, but they are few in number. They are solidly built, thick-walled, and have extraordinarily few windows. Those on the ground floor frequently have bars. More often than not, the lower part of the building is occupied by a money-changer, a member of the castrate sect, who lodges on the floor above. Outside and in, the place looks cold and forbidding, as if everything was concealing itself and hiding away somehow, though why such an impression should be created merely by the external look of a house would be hard to explain. The combined effect of architectural lines has its own secret, of course. These houses are inhabited almost exclusively by tradespeople. Approaching the gate and glancing at the notice, the prince read, the house of hereditary honored citizen Rogozhin. Without further hesitation, he opened the glass door, which slammed noisily shut behind him, and began making his way up the main staircase to the first floor. The stone staircase was dark and of rough workmanship. The walls had been painted a red color. He knew that the entire first floor of this dreary dwelling was occupied by Rogozhin, together with his mother and brother. The servant who opened the door admitted the prince without announcing his arrival and led him along for quite a while. They passed through a large reception room which had walls of imitation marble, an oak parquet floor and twenties furniture, coarse and ponderous. They also passed through some tiny rooms, twisting and zigzagging, mounting two or three steps and then descending as many before knocking eventually on one particular door. It was opened by Parfion Semyonich in person. Seeing the prince, he went so pale that he stood rooted to the spot, that for a moment he looked like some stone idol with a fixed and terrified gaze, his mouth twisted into a kind of smile of utter bewilderment, as if he found something unthinkable and almost miraculous in this visit of the prince's. Though the prince had expected something of the kind, he couldn't help being astonished. Parfion, perhaps I've come at the wrong time. I can go away, you know, he brought out at length, embarrassed. It's all right, it's all right, Parfion recovered himself at last. By all means, come in. They talked in the manner of old friends. In Moscow, chance had thrown them together frequently for long periods, there had even been moments during their meetings which had indelibly impressed themselves on each of their hearts. Now, however, it had been over three months since they had set eyes on one another. Rogozhin's face still retained its pallor and a tiny flickering twitch. 
Although he had invited his visitor inside, his intense embarrassment persisted. Wally was showing the prince over to the armchairs and seating him at the table, the latter chanced to turn towards him and halted, struck by his strange and grim expression. Something seemed to transfix the prince, and at the same time he recalled something recent, somber and painful. Without sitting down, he remained motionless for a while, looking Rogozhin straight in the eyes. At first, they seemed to glitter even more intensely. At length, Rogozhin smiled, though rather disconcerted and seemingly at a loss. What are you staring like that for? he muttered. Sit down. The prince sat down. Parfion, he said, tell me frankly, did you know I was coming to Petersburg or not? I thought you would come, and as you see, I was right, he added, smiling sardonically. But how was I to know you'd be coming today? A certain harsh abruptness and the odd irritability of the question which comprised the answer surprised the prince even more. Well, even if you had known I'd come today, why be so cross about it? said the prince softly, bemused. Why do you ask that, then? This morning, when I was getting off the train, I saw a pair of eyes looking just as you did a moment ago behind me. You don't say so. And whose eyes were they, then? muttered Rogozhin suspiciously. The prince thought he gave a start. I don't know. I even thought I'd imagined it in the crowd. I'm beginning to imagine quite a lot of things. I feel almost like I did five years ago when I used to have my fits, Parfion, my friend. Well, maybe you did imagine it. I don't know, muttered Parfion. The affectionate smile on his face at that moment didn't ring true. It was as if something in it had broken, and he didn't have the strength to stick it back together again, no matter how hard he tried. So then, off abroad again, is it? he asked, suddenly adding, Remember how we travelled in the same carriage from Pskov last autumn? Me on my way here, and you in that cloak, remember, those gaiters? And Rogozhin abruptly burst out laughing, this time with undisguised malice, glad of the chance, it seemed, to find some vent for it. You've settled down here for good? asked the prince, surveying the study. Yes, this is home. Where else should I be, then? We've not met for a long time. I've heard such things about you. Not like you at all. People will say anything, observed Rogozhin coldly. But you've got rid of all your gang. You're living in your father's house and behaving yourself. Well, that's all to the good. Is the house yours, then, or do you own it jointly? It's mother's. She's across the corridor. And where does your brother live? Semyon Semyonich lives in one wing. Is he a family man? A widower. Why do you want to know? The prince looked at him without replying. He was suddenly lost in thought and appeared not to have heard the question. Rogozhin waited without pressing the point. Both were silent for a while. On my way here, I picked out your house a hundred yards away, the prince said. How so? I've no idea. Your house looks like all your family, and your whole Rogozhin existence. And if you ask me why I came to that decision, I simply couldn't tell you. Sheer imagination, of course. It frightens me that it should bother me so much. It would never have occurred to me that you lived in a house like this, but as soon as I set eyes on it, it struck me at once. Why, that's just the sort of house he was bound to have. There you are, then. Rogozhin smiled vaguely, not quite following the prince's obscure train of thought. This house was built by my grandfather, he remarked. Castrates always lived here, the Chludyakovs, and they still rented from us. It's so dark in here. You're living in darkness, said the prince, glancing round the study. It was a sizable room, lofty and rather gloomy, 
and cluttered with furniture of all kinds, office desks for the most part, bureau and cupboards, holding business records and papers. The broad red Morocco sofa clearly served Rogozhin as a bed. The prince noted two or three books on the table where Rogozhin had seated him. One of them, Salavyov's history, was open and had a bookmark in it. A number of oil paintings in tarnished gilt frames adorned the walls. They were somber and smoke-begrimed, and it was hard to make out anything of them. One full-length portrait attracted the prince's attention. It depicted a man of about fifty, wearing a frock coat of German cut but long-skirted. He had two medals round his neck. His beard was very sparse and short, and he had a furrowed, sallow face and mistrustful, secretive, melancholy eyes. That wouldn't be your father, would it? That's just who it is, replied Rogozhin with an unpleasant grin, as if prepared for some instant jocular familiarity at the expense of his late parent. He wasn't an old believer, was he? No. He went to church, but he did used to say that the old faith was closer to the truth. He had great respect for the castrates, too. This used to be his office. Why did you ask if he was an old believer? The wedding. You'll be having it here? Yes, Rogozhin replied, startled almost by the unexpectedness of the question. Will it be soon? Doesn't depend on me, you know very well. Parfion, I'm not your enemy, and I've got no intention of interfering with you in any way. I'm repeating now what I've said before, once on a very similar occasion. When your wedding was going forward in Moscow, I didn't interfere, as you know. The first time she came running to me, practically from the altar, begging me to save her from you. I'm repeating her own words. Afterwards, she ran away from me, too. You sought her out and brought her to the church, and now she's fled here from you again, so they say. Is that true? Lebedev wrote to me about it, that's why I came. That you've made it up again, I only heard for the first time on the train yesterday, from one of your former friends, Zalyozhev, if you want to know. I travelled here with an end in view. I wanted to persuade her to go abroad for her health. She's very distressed in body and mind especially mentally, and, in my opinion, she needs properly looking after. I didn't want to take her abroad myself. I wanted to arrange it all without my being personally involved. I'm telling you the honest truth. If it's really true that everything's all right between you again, she won't get a glimpse of me, and I'll never come here any more either. You know very well that I'm not deceiving you. I've always been open with you. I've never concealed from you what I thought about all this, I always said that marrying you would be certain disaster for her. And for you, too. Perhaps worse than for her. If you were to part again, I would be very pleased. But I don't intend to upset or sow division between you myself. Rest assured of that, and trust me. Anyway, you know very well whether I was ever your real rival, even when she ran away to me. You laughed just there. I know that made you smile. Yes, we lived apart there in different towns, and you know all that for a fact. I explained to you before, didn't I, that I loved her out of compassion, not love. I think that was an accurate definition. You said you understood my words, then. Was that so? Did you? There, what a hateful look you've got. I came to reassure you because you are dear to me also. I love you greatly, Parfion, and now I'm going, and I will never come back. Goodbye. The prince rose. Sit with me for a while, said Parfion softly, remaining where he was, chin resting in his right palm. I haven't seen you for a long time. The prince sat down. Both fell silent again. When you're not in front of me, I start hating you at once, Lev Nikolaevich. Over these three months when I haven't seen you, I've hated you every minute, honest to God. I felt like poisoning you, and so it was. 
Now you haven't been with me a quarter of an hour, and all my anger passes off. You're as dear to me as ever you were. Sit with me for a while. When I'm with you, you trust me. And when I'm not, you stop trusting me at once and start suspecting things. You're just like your father, the prince replied, smiling in friendly fashion in order to conceal his emotion. I trust your voice when I'm with you. I'm very well aware we can't be regarded as equals, you and I. Why did you have to add that? And now you're cross again, said the prince, marveling at Rogozhin. Well, as regards that, friend, nobody asks our opinion. They decide that without us. And we love in different ways, too. We're different in everything. He went on softly, then paused. You say you love her out of compassion. There's no such compassion in me towards her. And she hates me more than anything. I dream about her every night. Always her with another man laughing at me. That's the way it is, friend. She's going to marry me, and she never gives me a thought. It's as though she were changing her shoes. Believe it or not, I haven't seen her for five days because I daren't show my face. Why have you come? She'll ask. Not to mention her shaming me. Shaming you? What do you mean? As if you didn't know. Wasn't it you she ran away with from the altar? You said so yourself just now. But you don't believe yourself that she... Didn't she shame me with that officer in Moscow, Zemtyoshnikov? I know for a fact she did, declared Rogozhin with conviction. And that was after she'd fixed the wedding day herself. She's not that kind, you think? Don't try and tell me she isn't, my friend. That's all nonsense. Perhaps she isn't when she's with you. I dare say she'd be horrified at the idea. But that's just how she is with me. She treats me like dirt. I know for a fact she pretended to have an affair with Keller, that officer, the boxer fellow, just to make me look a fool. Oh, you don't know half the tricks she played on me in Moscow, and the money, the money I've laid out. But how on earth can you get married now? How will you go on afterwards? asked the prince, horrified. Rogozhin gave the prince a grim and terrible look, and made no reply. I haven't been to see her for five days, he went on after a moment's pause. I keep worrying she'll send me packing. I'm still my own mistress, says she. If I want to, I'll chase you away altogether and go off abroad. She's already told me that about going abroad he remarked, as if in parenthesis, with a meaning look into the prince's eyes. It's true, sometimes she's only trying to scare me. She finds everything I do funny. Other times she scowls and frowns and never says a word. That's what really frightens me. The other day I thought, I'll make sure I never come with empty hands. That only made her laugh, and later on she lost her temper even. She gave her maid Katka a shawl I'd brought her. She'd probably never seen the like, even if she did live in the lap of luxury before. As for the wedding day, I can't even mention it. I ask you, what sort of fiancé is it who's simply too afraid to see her? So, 